2: Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's
0: the first listener mail of the new year. It's 2022 and the mailbag overfloweth. We have a lot of uh, messages to catch up on. Uh, So some of these will go back uh, a little bit into December, but, you know, uh, that's what we got to do. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, I think maybe I'm going to start with a message from Tom. This was in response to the couple of episodes we did about uh, the history of time travel thought. And so a refresher on on what Tom brings up in particular, in these episodes we talked about how languages generally conceptualize time using metaphors based on space. So we talk about time like it's a type of space. You know, you arrive at home or you can arrive at 415 Uh, and how for English and many other modern languages, we picture that time, uh, that space-like time, with the future situated in front of us and the past behind us. And in part two of that episode, uh, we discussed one, uh, uh, one previous piece of listener mail where somebody got in touch to say that this spatial orientation is reversed for Cantonese speakers, that for... Uh, Cantonese speakers, the future is behind you and the past is in front. And so Tom picks up on this by saying, hi, guys. I just finished listening to Time Traveler Zero Part 2. The Cantonese example of a reversed spatial metaphor for time orientation reminded me of something from an introductory book about linguistics which I have attached. According to this guide, the ancient Greeks oriented themselves in time linguistically just as it is in Cantonese. The past, being visible and known, is perceived as in front or ahead, whereas the unknown-slash-invisible future is behind. I have no idea if this is still true of the Greek language of today. The book is Linguistics, a Graphic Guide by Trask and Mayblen. Thanks. Love the show, Tom. Uh, so I found this really interesting, and I actually I looked this book up and uh, and found a PDF of it where uh, I could look at the, the couple of pages in question here. And according to these authors, it is indeed as Tom says. But uh, there was another interesting thing about it, which is that uh, at first... I imagined that the distinction here was that the spatial metaphor for time among future in front people like like English speakers like us, uh, the future in front people, that their metaphors would be based on travel. So mm-hmm. for example, if you're walking forward, the place you will occupy in the future is in front of you whereas whereas I assumed sort of the difference was that future in back people, would not be thinking about travel or movement, but instead would have spatial metaphors for time, based on looking at things in space rather than moving through space. In which case, it totally makes sense that the future is hidden behind you, and the past is visible in front.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things that's interesting about this is uh, is if you th- if you think about some some of the things we've actually discussed in the show recently, if you think about the power of nostalgia, if you. You think about uh, the power of um, of myth, and, and you think about uh, such concepts as, as future shock. Um, it makes sense that the future would be the thing overtaking us, uh, moving from behind, not the thing that we're we're boldly and accurately uh, moving into. Oh well, actually, yeah. In stating that, so you've gotten ahead of me here.
0: The the uh, uh, or have I gotten I was... behind you? <laughs> right. Um, so, what I was saying was, I initially assumed that the difference was based on a moving versus looking distinction. But at least according to the way Trask and Maybelline present it in this book, actually, both ways of conceptualizing time as space have some kind of idea of movement through space. It's just a question of what is doing the moving. Mm -hmm. So in this book, the way they present it is that while modern English speakers imagine ourselves moving forward through time toward the future. So the timeline is like a fixed space and we're traveling through it. The ancient Greeks would have imagined themselves uh, standing in place and the timeline itself being the thing that moved. So you're standing still looking out over the past as it recedes away from you and the future rushes towards you and overtakes you from the rear.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I say, this, this seems like it would be more in keeping with the way a lot of us actually experience change rather than how we, we think we anticipate change.
0: I agree. I I think that there's a lot that's useful to that kind of metaphor. Uh, And it's clear that many languages apparently still largely look at it this way today. Uh, So yeah, how does that change the way you think about, you know, planning in your life and all kinds of things if the timeline is what moves like a river that flows around you, and you're standing there facing downstream? Uh, and yeah, and it raises all kinds of questions, like, for example, if the ancient Greeks, if some ancient Greek author had come up with the idea of a time machine, would they be likely to think of that as a vehicle, like a, you know, a chariot that travels through time? Maybe not. I mean, maybe they'd be more likely to, I don't know how they conceptualize it, something that, that changes
1: the flow of the river or something. Hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we would have to to think, I guess, about the... what sort of of, of metaphors they would lean heavily on in in thinking about time.
0: And so in reaction to this, I started looking around for other examples of of other languages that think about time like this with the future – in back and the past in front. And I did find some other examples. So for example, I came across a book chapter by a German Assyriologist named Stefan M. Mall. Uh, I don't know much about him otherwise, but in, in this book chapter, he at least talks about how ancient Mesopotamian languages like Akkadian and Sumerian did the same thing. They framed time as the, as situated with the past in front of you and the future behind you. And in this chapter, uh, Maul links this to elements of ancient Mesopotamian culture, which he claims were were strongly focused on the past and on tradition. And I also came across a a claim where I I wasn't able to hunt down the original source of this, so I'm I'm not 100% certain about it. But at least the claim that uh, some Pacific Island peoples also conceptualized the past as in
1: front and the future behind. Yeah, and to come back to, you know, what, one of the concepts we were talking about in those episodes, the idea of mythic time, you know, Eliade's treatment of, uh, of mythic time, uh, you know, it, it, would, it would make sense. You have these ancient cultures that are, that, are, that are more focused on what came before, the important time that birthed what we are today.
0: So one thing I would be really interested in now, and in fact, I'd be kind of surprised if somebody hasn't already done this work, and I just haven't come across it yet, would be sort of uh, establishing a family tree of of spatial time conceptualizations, because we have pretty good ideas of – what languages are descended from which ancestral languages today, just kind of like we can make family trees for organisms, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I would be interested to see the historical flows of like where different spatial time metaphors uh, come from and how they, they trickle down into the different language
1: groups today. Do any of these uh, languages or cultures have more of a crab-based idea of time, that you're moving sideways
0: yeah. into yeah, the past I wonder, or the present? Yeah, I wonder. What a perfect callback. Yeah, great question. I don't know.
1: All right, here's one that comes to us from Josh. Josh writes, hi, guys. First, you three are my pandemic survival kit. This cannot be overstated. Neither can the gratitude I feel. Now it seems to me that the timing of time travel machines corresponds to the fact that machines were in fact responsible for time dilation. If your friend lives a day's horse ride away and now a train or car can get you there in a couple of hours, the machine has essentially transported you back in time. You leave in the morning and somehow arrive in the morning instead of that night. One can imagine someone pondering this at the time to think, What if machines get better and better at this trick until you are arriving before you have even left? The speed of travel has decreased the association between space and time. Imagine what would happen if someone built a shiny metal box that could transport you at 88 miles per hour. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Yeah,
0: I I think that's a a, a very plausible idea about where a lot of these time travel stories come from in like the late 19th century. Uh, Now, we know that there were some time travel stories before them, but it really picks up with uh, time travel via a device or machine in like the 1880s and 90s.
1: Yes, yeah. Though, you know, I, I, I have to admit, anytime I'm on a long flight that goes across time zones, uh, I can't help but think about time travel a little bit, you know. You know, the idea that you might get on a, a multi-hour flight, uh, but uh, due to time zone shenanigans, you're actually only traveling, uh, you know, like maybe one hour or two hours uh, mm-hmm. through clock time. Yeah, and don't get me started about flying backwards across the international date line. (laughs) Or wait, is it forwards or backwards that makes it? I'm not sure. Depends if you're you're flying Greek Air or not.
0: all right let's uh, turn to some messages about music and memory so we got a number of messages about uh different musical mnemonic devices that people learned in school since that came up in the episode about wh- whether or not uh, music helps people memorize verbal information and if it does do that how does it do that what why and and how does it work so, I'm not going to read all of these, but I did want to note that longtime correspondent Jim in New Jersey got in touch to say that uh, when he was in school, he learned a uh, a great uh, little little sing-song verse about how to uh, how to learn Latin and it included all of like conjugation and declension and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to read another one. This one comes from John. And John says, "Dear Robert and Joe, just a few minutes into your episode on music and memory, a very particular tune popped into my head pop goes the weasel except the lyrics weren't those of the nursery rhyme but the variables of the quadratic formula if you'd like to (laughs) sing along all over 2a is the replacement lyric for pop goes the weasel uh can i sing this or is the let's see is pop goes the weasel under under copyright enforcement
1: i think you're probably okay isn't this like fair use or educational We're going to the big pop goes the weasel lawyers after us.
0: Okay, so I think it would go something like this. Please don't pillory me if I, if I say something wrong here. Um, it would be like x equals negative b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac all over
1: 2a. <laughs> I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it.
0: I think it almost fits the rhythm. It's a little difficult with the minus 4ac unless I... Uh, misunderstood that somehow. Anyway, John goes on to say, my only remaining memory from this particular high school math class is that is the teacher singing the equation to the class, then the class responding with laughter over its absurdity. And then the teacher's assurance that we'd never forget the quadratic equation again. Well, nearly two decades later, the jokes on us. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for being my second favorite podcast in my Spotify 2021 wrapped, but number one in my heart. John. Oh, well, that's nice. Uh, Oh, and John also says, P.S. I can also still name all the American presidents in order thanks to a song we were taught in elementary school. Music
1: and memory. It's a thing. Huh. Yeah, I wonder what the tune was. I vaguely remember something about that, uh, but I don't think it stuck with me. So I've actually thought about
0: this a good bit since we did the the music and memory episode. Like, if music does indeed aid with the uh, the formation of memory or the uh, with cementing verbal memories, uh, what why does it do that? And I think I've got a, a pretty tentative take on this, but obviously I'm I'm still open minded about it. But I think the two main reasons music probably helps people memorize verbal information. Would be first of all, something we talked about in the episode, which is that, uh, which is that mu- the verbal content in music is structured, meaning that lyrics have meter and rhyme and they occur within a regular structure usually. So, like, you know, you'll know that the verse in the song has four lines and they're this long, and then the chorus has this many lines and they're this long. And that structure is what helps you complete a half formed thought or find the next thought. So it might not be so much the tune or the melody that helps you remember the words, but the fact that when words are presented in music, they are organized and structured in a way that helps you fill in gaps. And then the second thing, I think, is that you're probably more likely to spontaneously rehearse verbal information that's set to music than you are to spontaneously rehearse verbal information on its own, uh, and and I think this would tie into the idea that music is enjoyable. Like we like music, and when we and we want to repeat it to ourselves, and so the pleasure in the tune or the melody is like the inherent incentive to sing it repeatedly to ourselves. And when you sing it repeatedly to yourself, this has a side effect of memory reinforcement through repetition and rehearsal. So that's my vibe.
1: All right. Well, here's another one. This one comes to us from Matt. Uh, Matt says, Hey, Robert and Joe, with regard to your discussion in your recent episode on music and memory, I have an experience and some thoughts I would like to share with you. First, the experience. One day when I was around 13 or 14 years old, I was playing Metroid 2 on my Game Boy while my older sister was watching her then favorite show, Dawson's Creek, a show I was not particularly interested in by any means. Now, this may seem like an odd random fact to just mention like that, but years later, I went back and decided to play the same game again, and wouldn't you know it, when the music started playing, it was like the show, Dawson's Creek, was playing again in the background. I would even recall specific lines that I overheard during that first playthrough. I thought you might find this experience interesting specifically because music seemed to be tied to recalling information that I wasn't even paying attention to in the first place. Anyways, on to my other thoughts. I was thinking about one reason some may uh, more readily recall verbal information when put to music when compared to without. Could be less to do with the music itself and more to do with the fact that we generally enjoy the experience of music far more than we do just hearing words being repeated. I think it's safe to say when we are engaged in something we enjoy, our brains are also in turn more engaged than otherwise. More engaged brain equals better attention. This brought on another thought— When we try to use music in our studies, we typically have some hand in the creation of the song we use. I have heard that one of the best ways to maintain a memory of something is to modify it in some way in your mind, even as simply as restating the information in a different way, such as thinking 2,137 versus 2,137. This is essentially what we are doing when we are putting the information we are trying to remember to music. It usually involves some level of changing the phrasing or order of the information to make it fit the music at a minimum. Anyways, love the podcast. Keep up the fantastic content flowing into my ear holes. Thanks, Matt.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, Yeah, regarding your point about modifying information to remember it better. Uh, I, I've never looked into the empirical research on this, but it certainly seems true from my firsthand experience. Uh, so obviously, like you mentioned, the simplest version is just rephrasing something, putting, putting, say a, uh, an explanation or a summary of some events or something into your own words. I think definitely at least helps me remember it better, but also like you say, you know, putting something to a song, that, that's doing something similar. You're forming like different levels of connections with bits of information that seem to help it stick more. Another big one, I think, is making puns about something. Like if you're trying to remember names, if you make jokes about the names while you're trying to memorize them, I feel like they stick a lot more.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, another thing that comes to mind is you know, like knots. Yeah, a knot can be a pretty complicated thing to t- to, uh, to to pull off you know there's a lot lot going on there you're engaging your you know the different memory systems here and what do we often do well we end up um T- taking a, a little narrative and applying it to it, where oh, yeah. we're not so so much concerned about okay, where's the left end go? How do I do I hold down this finger? No, we talk about where does the rabbit go and do, and into what hole and so mm. forth.
0: What's the one Quint says in Jaws that you comes out of the hole, goes into the cave, goes around the pole, <laughs> goes into the cave again.
1: Oh, that's a good one. I forgot all about that part. Not too good, is it, Chief? <laughs>
0: But as to the first half of your message, I mean, yeah, clearly it sounds like you're forming um, memory associations between between like a video game or video game music and then some other environmental content. In in this case, Dawson's Creek. But yeah, I I feel like I probably have memories like that. I can't call a specific one to mind right now. But if I were to to fire up the Game Boy I played in, you know, when when I was a little kid, and hear that, uh, you know, Super Mario Land music, I'm sure I would. Well, I think what I would think of is like uh, being hot in the back seat of the car. Did they leave you in there? No, 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 just, no, your Game no. Boy? just like okay. a long,
1: you know, long car rides. I think. Oh, That's, yeah, yeah. That yeah.
0: was primary Game Boy time. Okay,
1: but still, I'm guessing like stuck to that kind of um, uh, like, like, like sweaty flesh, just just yeah. adhered to the the seat. Mm. They have to peel you out at the end, still playing the <laughs> Game Boy. The Naga hide. The Naga hide was uh, was was key, <laughs> right. as I recall. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Did you know? By the way, I can't remember if we ever talked about this. Did you know that the Nagahide as a brand had a, had its own mascot monster,
1: the Naga? Oh my goodness! I just looked this up, and no, until t- this moment, I did not know they had their own monster. But this is awesome! Look at him; he's like a like the backside of a of a Nagahide chair. Yeah, he's, he's made out of Nagahide, but he's mm-hmm. just a he's just a little toothy critter, and he, he's a Naga, uh, uh, or at least that's what the ad copy I'm I'm reading here is. Naga, the the beast from which we derive naga hide. I I, I can only imagine they're extinct now. No nagas were harmed in the making of this naga hide. (laughs) The company seems to still be around, but I don't, but you go to their website and there's no naga monster anywhere, which seems like a massive misstep. Well, no, wait, there he is. He's still on the website. I take it all back. Oh, good, good. Oh my goodness. You can actually, this, (laughs) maybe we'll have to cut all this, but now I'm even more excited. You can buy a naga. They sell nagas. Rob, not a you're, telling,
0: you're <laughs> telling me I can buy a Naga. I have bought a Naga.
1: My <laughs> wife have? has a Naga you have a that Naga? I bought for her. Yeah. Wh- what color is it? Uh, I think it's sort of teal. Oh, nice, nice. Good Naga choice. Oh, my goodness. My, I, this is one of those moments where I feel like I've crossed over into another dimension because this just seems like information I should have had. I should have been, been all about these Nagas. And look at this. Going to NagaHide.com, looking at Naga... Nagas for different seasons for. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, little Santa Dif- Nagas. Yeah. Maybe this is what they do now. You just look at that cute, toothy
0: face and you think, it would not be so bad for my thighs to be <laughs> stripped of flesh as I'm peeled off of this creature. <laughs> oh man. Okay. You ready for this next message about time and crabs? Yeah. Yeah. Bring it on. Okay, this comes from Scott. Scott says, Dear Rob and Joe, I've been a big fan of the podcast for several years and have been looking for an excuse to write in. After a recent catch-up binge, I now have several. First, towards the beginning of the episode, Time Traveler Zero Part One, Joe seemed to suggest that the metaphor, killing time, wasn't especially evocative due to it being an overused cliche. I refute this stance wholeheartedly. (laughs) Okay, Uh, to this day, I cannot hear this phrase without bringing to mind the scene from the book The Phantom Tollbooth, where the main character Milo explains to Talk, a literal watchdog, that he is just killing time, which naturally infuriates the canine chronometer. Hmm. If you're unfamiliar with the work, it is a strange meandering journey through the awakening of a bored child's curiosity and wonder. I highly recommend it to young readers. Uh, I've actually never read it, but I, uh, I've heard of it many times.
1: Yeah, I've never read it either, though. it's It's been recommended to me, um, and it's been recommended as something for young readers. But uh, I, I think my son read a little of it. I don't, I don't know if he's stuck with it.
0: Uh, but we're about to get to the part of this email for which we must uh, bring out the dishes of drawn butter, because... Uh, <laughs> Scott says, secondly, in a recent Listener Mail episode, another writer suggested that the Tarasque from Dungeons and Dragons was actually a Godzilla sized crab. A little later, you were lamenting the giant crabs of uh, Dungeons & Dragons low intelligence score. And you wondered if somebody had homebrewed the crab monsters from Attack of the Crab Monsters. Uh, yeah, this came up because the crab monsters in the, uh, in the Roger Corman drive-in movie are not low intelligence. They are, inc- they are not only brilliant, they have absorbed the minds of many men. And uh, when, they, when they eat your brains, they gain your knowledge. Scott goes on. This is where I come in. I am an aspiring D&D 5e content producer, and your show is often a wellspring of excellent monster ideas, e.g. the leshy... Yeti crabs, etc. I even purchased the much-lauded Giants, Monsters, and Dragons book for inspiration. So, when you mused about the stats of crabs, I got to work. (laughs) Now, giant crabs are mostly low-level critters that any capable adventuring party should have little problem dispatching. But if you make them a bit larger, thicken their carapace, and add some of the abilities of an intellect devourer, uh, I'm assuming this is an example of such, the Mind Flayer Brain Hounds... You've got a pretty solid starting place for the aforementioned crab monsters. I've included JPEGs of the end result and another of my giant Yeti crab. I hope you enjoy them. You're some of the most engaging and amusing science communicators out there, and I can't wait to see what wonderful weirdness y'all will bring my mostly mundane workday. Best, Scott. Well, Scott, this is a wonderful email. Thank you for getting in touch, but you have made a major error. You forgot to attach the
1: images. So Rob and I are just sitting here with, like... Bereft, <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to see this crap uh, but i 'm glad that that he he 's putting in the work on this. Uh, this is something that needs to exist out there in the at least in the homebrew uh, universe of uh, of monsters, and also good on picking up uh giants, monsters, and dragons by Carol Rose. I think I heard from another listener who had uh, recently acquired a copy of this book, uh, just a tremendous uh, treasure trove of of fantastic creatures uh, for anyone out there who, who like me, loves uh, loves a good uh, uh, bestiary. Speaking of monsters, Joe, I do have to mention, uh, my wife and I started watching the second season of The Witcher on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> okay. Or uh, The Witcher, as, uh, as uh, our, our main character would say. The Witcher. And uh, I have to say, second episode, I think it is, uh, includes versions of both Aleshi and <gasps> Baba Yaga. So Whoa! Uh, I have to give, give, give that show credit.
0: Well, that's based on like uh, Polish monster folklore, isn't it? Or at least the novels uh, it, are Polish?
1: I, I believe so, yes. So okay. it, it makes sense that, you know, that he would draw, uh, that author would draw in these various uh, folkloric uh, concepts. Uh, now, I can't, I haven't read them, so I can't speak to them and I can't speak to um, how exactly. These episodes have adapted those works, but Mm -hmm. still, at the end of the day, you have somebody fighting a variation on the leshy, and yeah, my excitement was growing as they started talking about this strange house in the the woods that had basilisk legs, and I was like, oh, that's gonna be Baba Yaga.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, so I haven't read the books and I haven't seen the show. Well, I think we sort of uh put on one of the episodes of the show just sort of in the background for laughs. I I don't know. It might be a great show. I haven't seen it. Uh but I have played one of the video games and it had a lot of great monsters in
1: it. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, mon- the monster the monsters game's pretty solid in the show, uh too, based on, on what I've seen. And the lead performance? The- Very gravelly.
0: <laughs> Wait, it's that uh it's the it's the, 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 the really buff gamer guy, isn't it?
1: Uh, wait, uh, Henry Cavill? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Isn't yeah, he like he, a muscled nerd? He is, yeah. Get used to him, because I think he's currently attached to the uh, Highlander reboot. I don't know who oh. he's going to play. I, I hope the Kurgan. I think, based on especially what I've seen in The Witcher, it's like he's got the gravelly voice, mm-hmm. and I would like to see him play a villain for a, for for a change, and he's a, he's a solid actor, so I'm curious to see what he could do. He was riveting in Hellraiser 8. <laughs> was he? Was he in that? Or
0: whichever one, the one where the, the one where evil goes online, the the one with the virtual reality. Yeah. He's in that. Oh, I was not aware of that. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's, it's great. (laughs) It's not.
1: All right. Well, let's close things out with a little Weird House Cinema listener mail. This one comes to us from Alan. Alan writes, Gents, I recently stumbled upon your podcast and I have really been enjoying it. The origins of the chainsaw first caught my attention. It's all great stuff, but my mind truly did combust a little when I saw you did a Weird House episode on Ewoks, the battle for Endor. (laughs) I vaguely recall my sister and I watching this and The Caravan of Courage when they first aired, but what I remember most was watching and wearing out the VHS tapes recorded from TV, complete with commercials, and about a second of a football game where I accidentally hit the record button on the remote while watching. These movies were a big part of our childhood, so much so that my sister named her oldest daughter, now in her 20s, after Sindel, or Sindel. I can't remember how the character's name is pronounced offhand. Yeah. C-I-N-D-E-L. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they continue. So, uh, uh, we were all amazed how much she looked like Aubrey Miller through uh, her early childhood. Every once in a while, she still gets a knowing smile or an outright OMG from the Ewoks right <laughs> when people hear her name. Her best
0: friend is Wilford Brimley. <laughs>
1: Um, but uh, I have to say, I think that's awesome. My, my son's first name, in large part, comes from uh, Bastian Balthazar Bucks from uh, the Neverending Story. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think, I think, drawing on the the names of our cinematic and literary mythology are are, are totally totally called for and appropriate. Anyway, Alan continues. I don't know if the tapes still exist, possibly in my parents' basement, but I found the DVDs years ago and introduced my kids to these gems. They are great fun, and we still watch them when we're looking to watch something fun and not too heavy. My favorite character, of course, was Teek. He was just awesome. And uh, there were <laughs> a few years where I thought I could actually make a glider like Wicket. If he could do it, why couldn't I? Of course, the answer to that question is because he's a fictional character, though there's still part of me that believes I could if I had, had access to proper sized animal bones and skin. <laughs> well, thanks again for allowing me uh, to reminisce. Uh, the episode was great. I really enjoyed it. Keep making great content. Alan. Oh, well, Thanks, Alan. Uh, yeah, th- this is a heartwarming email. Uh, the The one thing
0: though that really stuck in my mind was the part of the much beloved uh, VHS tape where you accidentally taped over it with a second of something else. Uh, Rob, I assume you had something like that in your house. I- everybody I know did. There's a famous story in my in my wife's family where they uh, they. I think they borrowed a friend's uh, dearly, uh, dearly cherished uh, copy of Newsies on a VHS tape, and mm-hmm. accidentally taped over one second of it with a you know personal injury lawyer ad. And uh, <laughs> they still remember what part of Newsies that where that happens.
1: Oh yeah, I mean the VHS medium, uh, you know, it had so many wonderful things about it that at the time we often took for granted. Um, you know, part of it was, of course, the ads. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's fascinating to think about, you know, to look back on like all those times where, if you were really trying to do it right, you would try and clip out the ads. But nowadays, I mean, that, that's what I would want to see. I, I, I don't yeah. just want to see that. If I want to watch this movie that I caught on Sci-Fi Channel in the '90s, I can probably find it. But what I would really love to do is, is watch all the ads with it as the well. Commercials, like, able, yeah, yeah. And some of that stuff is just lost, I guess.
0: Oh, God. Well, I mean, like, it's the best part of watching the Star Wars Holiday Special, actually. Like, yeah, I, I would never mm-hmm. want to see the Holiday Special without the uh, the Ladies' Garment Workers Union commercial and Tobor <laughs> and all of that great
1: stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty tremendous. Um, I think I, I, I still have a few gems like that. But there's a lot of that stuff that I just lost. I do. One thing I, I remember from VHS, talking about VHS tapes that were just used to death, uh, we had a copy of Jim Henson's Labyrinth, uh, which is still a, a, one of my favorite films, but we just watched the hell out of it so much that at one point the VHS tape broke and we had it professionally repaired which I, I can't imagine, what? I don't even know how that worked. Like, where did my parents take it to get fixed? Who did that? And why was it more cost-effective than just buying a new copy of Labyrinth? But when Labyrinth came back, it was slightly warped, so it has this kind of uh, VHS, now we would think of just like a VHS glitch kind of a, 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 a aspect to the entire film, Whoa. the entire film plus the trailer to uh, The Name of the Rose that plays at the very beginning. <laughs> and so, nowadays, if I watch Labyrinth or I watch that trailer, uh, it just doesn't sound the same because it should be slightly warped. I'm still reeling from the idea of a, a VHS tape repair person. <laughs> I don't know who did that. That sounds like the world's best job. Did they take it to somewhere around town? Did they mail it off? I don't know. I'm, I'll have to ask my mom about this. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening, um, call me. We'll, we'll discuss. Teniri Bell. It's Labyrinth spelled backwards. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we got to call it there. But thank you,
0: everyone, for getting in touch. And we'll be, uh, I'm sure, catching up on more of the, the emails that came in over the
1: holidays in the weeks to come. That's right. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you can find anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. We do listener mail on Monday. We do an artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays That's a short form episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to put most serious uh, matters aside and just talk about a strange movie.